This morning our speaker is Ronica Batsnick, PhD in psychologist in private practice in Berkeley. She specializes in mindfulness-based strategies for depression, anxiety, and weight management. She's been practicing meditation since 1985. While in Thailand, she spent two years at the forest monasteries of Ajahn Anand Ajahn, and Ajahn Ghana, two of Ajahn Chah's most highly esteemed disciples. She's the author of The Zen of Eating, Ancient Answers to Modern Weight Problems, and the book review editor for The Inquiring Mind. Good morning. So good, good morning to everybody. Thank you for coming. I'm always delighted to be um, invited to come teach at Gill's Center. Gill's one of my meditation teachers for many, many years. So, um, and I've taught a mindful eating series here at a class, a mindful de- uh, mindfulness and depression class, which I'm also going to start teaching. I guess at the, I think at the end of January. A good time of the year for <laughs> those struggling with um, issues of depression. That'll be a five-week series. So, um, as I was sitting here, I, there were two topics I want. I was thinking of of talking about, not just while I was sitting here, but since I was invited to come. And one was talking about the tsunami because um, I don't know if some of you heard my talk on, on working in the tsunami uh, when I was in Thailand. I went down and helped out and helped people identify bodies of their loved ones and um, you know participated in really a life-changing experience and of course the anniversary is coming up. Uh, and then I thought, well, maybe I should just keep it light and talk about <laughs> being kind uh, because it's it's a difficult season. So. Has anybody heard my talk on the tsunami? Yeah, okay, so good. So I can. Anyway, it was a life-changing. Uh, to, to, in, a, in a nutshell, it was a life-changing experience. But I think so is kindness. So I think that's what I'm going to stick with today. Um, and at the end, we can dedicate our merit to the um, victims of the tsunami and their survivors in our efforts to be kind. So that was my compromise. I hope it's okay. Um, so here we are, um, it's December 17th, the solstice is upon us uh, in the middle of, the, this was the, will be the third night of Hanukkah, Christmas is next week. Um, the expectations are in full force about how we're supposed to feel, um, probably one of the most you know, um, demanding times of the year in terms of the messages that we receive from the outside, the cravings that we experience from the inside. And, um, you know, in general, if you're, if you're just to the right or to the left of what any expectation you feel you're supposed to be living up to, if you're just slightly to the right of it, slightly to the left, or slightly in front, or slightly behind, there's usually going to be some form of suffering. Unless you're really plumb on the mean, which is basically almost impossible. Right? So my my guess, and please correct me if you're wrong, that you know, there there has been feelings of discomfort or disease, 
or um, just a general sense of what the Buddha called suffering. You know, and am I any disagreements with my this, this assessment? Um, the Buddha. By the way, is anybody new here today? Just want to find out. Okay, welcome. I'm sorry, welcome. This is a, a meditation center, and if I bring up the word Buddha, you you can either um, take it, you know, come what may, or just use it as a metaphor for somebody filled with wisdom and kindness, without going into the whole historical background. Anybody else just wanted to welcome? Um, the, the Buddha talked about you know craving as a source of suffering, and you know craving could be because we you know we we want something so badly that we you know lunge ourselves in that direction, or we don't want something and we're we're averse to it, so we lunge in the opposite direction to try to avoid it. Okay, and this is quite a, a brilliant analysis of why we suffer, and he called suffering like a wheel off center that we just can't seem to get it right. And when you notice the the um, the lyrics of the songs that we tend to hear, or the displays that we tend to see around us, I, in my personal experience, it's very easy to feel like a wheel off center, because you kind of see like, well, you know, how do I fit into this picture, or you know, where, you know. Where does this picture even come from? So, you know, cr- the craving, you know, do I even want to live up to these images or do I just want to shut my eyes and avoid them forever? When I lived in Thailand, by the way, there is no Christmas season or Hanukkah season. It's a Buddhist country. <laughs> so it's really interesting, you know, just to feel the conditioning arise in my body in a Buddhist country just because it happened to be this time of the year. And the only places that had Christmas and practically you know, no Hanukkah messages were in the places where um, where Westerners came to holiday, you know, came to, came to celebrate. And there they'd have you know fake Christmas trees and and really really bad Christmas carols. I don't know where. <laughs> I think Christmas carols are, are, are terrifically magnificent, but I don't know where they would find these in these resorts. But they were always terrible. And when I was down there for the tsunami, um, I guess in their efforts to try to um, you know, keep business going and keep the season of joy happy for those who weren't impacted by the uh, tragedy, you know, there was always this background of of these bizarre-sounding you know carols. So it's just a kind of. But um, it was really interesting living in a, in a Buddhist country where there isn't you know this kind of expectation really for any holiday, frankly. Um, to feel joyful and merry and in the in the spirit, um, maybe because there's the wisdom and the culture that you know craving, you know the good times or trying to avoid the bad times is impossible. So in the monasteries, it's just another day, except when somebody comes up to you, you know, who knows it's it's Christmas on the calendar and says, you know, Merry Christmas, which is a very nice thing to say. Um, so, craving and kindness, you know, in the, in this season of, you know, the tendency to feel off-center or out of sorts or lonely or isolated or 
not quite up to, you know, the messages that we, we see and hear for food or for the way we look or what we should be buying or what we should be receiving. Um, the Buddha gave us a beautiful refuge, a beautiful refuge. Um, he said, you know, the only place that really exists is, you know, the present moment and the only way we can connect with the present moment is within ourselves. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And if you think of, you know, the best gift that we can offer anybody um, is our attention, and which we can only give in the present. And the best gift we can give ourselves is to receive the present moment. We could actually find the season, you know, that could be fraught with a lot of difficulty and a lot of tension. Um, with the treasured opportunity to um, receive the present moment with as much kindness as we can with ourselves and to offer the attention uh, to others who may be suffering, may be in need of connection, may be in need of our ears and our hearts um, in response to their suffering or alienation or disconnection. You know, so, so how do we do that? You know, how do we offer that kindness, especially someone like me, who I'm an admitted curmudgeon. You know, I'm admitted. Uh, you know, to the season to be jolly. It's like I'm never jolly. Never mind. You know, creating a season around it. It's just I'm not a happy-go-lucky type. So, you know. So we take these difficult experiences, and the first thing is, you know, we don't see it so much as me. You know, these are these are experiences that roll through us and I can remind myself and you can remind yourself you know when I say I am not a happy-go-lucky type you know what that doesn't mean I never laugh and have fun or I can't enjoy myself so I make the effort as I encourage you to do not to box yourself in to a particular way of being and so when someone's trying to be happy around me and create that happy I don't have to sit there and you know, fight against it. You know, I can let joy into my heart, hear some good jokes or whatever, enjoy some good food. And it's a wonderful, so it's a wonderful time to remind us that we don't have to concretize around that I. Because that's really, you know, in any season, the biggest uh, target of loneliness is when we isolate ourselves, right? And we feel different than everybody. And one of my favorite expressions from the Buddha is that everybody's um, blood is red and everybody's tears are salty. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? So it, uh, when I think about that, I think about all the ways you know, that we are connected rather than thinking about all the ways that you know, we can isolate ourselves by concretizing an identity around me or mine or I or what I think or what, who I think I am. Which is a, you know, it's a challenge to do. It's a challenge to do because, you know, as we said, the habit gets so, uh, um, the force of momentum happens. And then we can soften around that and just say, you know, it's just now. You know, we don't have to be, think about how miserable we're going to be or how miserable we've, we've been, you know, because that, those are just thoughts in the present. So we practice breathing together just to, you know, really receive that in whatever it is. 
in bringing in the memory of the tsunami, you know, what a lesson. You know, you get up in the morning, if, if you happen to be out of bed when it even hit, and you got dressed for tennis or golf or surfing or, you know, brunch or, you know, a swimming lesson, a diving lesson, and, you know, you're on a morgue floor, you know, by, by or on a beach, dead on the beach by 11 o'clock in the morning, 10.30 in the morning. You know, things change in a dramatically tragic way, and also things change, you know, in amazing, you know, miracle ways, too. So I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be a downer, but we're, you know, you know, but there are, these extremes of life happen and wake us up to great tragedy and wake us up to great joy. So it's really funny, you know, and, you know, humorous when you're in your mind, you know, defining the future or, you know, trying to recreate the past so it's not as painful. And, you know, we're, if we're not awake, we're not receiving the potential of of what could be offered. Um, Which is what the Buddha instructed us to do over and over and over again, open our hearts to what is happening right now. And in that moment, you know, the possibility of a miracle exists all the time because we haven't written the future and we're not so caught up in the past that we can't be open to what's happening. So the joy that comes from you know, relaxing our minds and opening up to the present you know, isn't just you know, through the, the holiday season. It's what the Buddha taught, you know, can happen, uh, happens naturally. It's a natural state of mind. It's our natural gift. It's our natural birthright, which is quite a radical thing to say. Um, that the mind, when we leave it alone, when we allow it to settle naturally, you know, it's actually a very, it's, it's a receptive, um, organic process, like seeing. You know, we don't have to instruct our eyes to see or our nose to smell or our ears to hear. You know, neither do we need to direct our minds, you know, to experience what it does. And, um, you know, in any, in any Dharma talk, that's what we're always, you know, instructed to, to, to do and to receive and to be and to allow and to see what natural expressions of joy could come in the heart. Um, I was recently editing a talk by Ajahn Pasano, who's the co-abbot of a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery um, in Redwood City, which is about maybe four hours from here. And uh, the talk was about dana and about generosity. And there's such a beautiful part that I wanted to share with you today thinking about this season. And he talked about um, a very respected meditation master from Thailand going to Insight Meditation Center and um, during their three-month retreat there. And he had a translator and he said to the translator, you know, why are all these yogis so grim? They're all meditating and they're all sitting here in the right position but what, you know, what's going on? They, you know, after three months, you just would think there, it, it's in Thai, it's called pitti, it's called bliss. 
that their hearts would be really filled with bliss after three months, but they're all sitting there in the kind of right position and the, you know, that kind of grim expression. And the translator, who's American, said that they don't, Americans haven't been taught to practice dana, generosity, and sila, which is morality, um, as much as they've been, you know, been taught to practice um, dana and sila. And the, and the monk was shocked. You know, the monk was shocked because in Thailand, you know, you first learn to practice uh, dana, which is the which is um, the what the Buddha said was the basic building block of enlightenment, and then you practice sila, which is morality, which is the second building block, and then the third is meditation. So he said, you know, we've in America we've kind of jumped up to meditation rather than start with the joys of generosity and the joys of sila, which I think is so beautiful. Now, in this season, we may feel like, oh, we have to be generous and we have to give and we have to, you know, buy these beautiful presents. That wasn't what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about generosity. You know, the Buddha was really talking about a kind of generosity of heart. And even knowing when your heart is closed and constricted, just that knowing, just that knowing is a form of generosity. Isn't that beautiful? You know, nothing to do with dollars and cents. He said, the Buddha said that just, you know, the wisdom of connection, of just knowing something, is already letting go. A generosity is, dana is letting go. So we let go of expectations, you know, we let go of how thing, we think things should be or have to be. And we just, we offer ourselves, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, as a form of generosity. And I'm sure you've been with people where if they just listen to you, right? They just listen to you. They don't say a word. It's a beautiful form of generosity, you know? But sometimes when we're sitting here, you know, kind of closed and constricted and everybody has their own secrets and sorrows, you know, we kind of cut ourselves off from that. So, you know, it's so nice to remember that just letting go of our own story for a minute and connecting with somebody else and really, you know, just that sincerity, you know, that could bring, what, again, this, this feeling, I, I love the word in, um, in uh, Thai, piti, piti, they could say piti jai. Piti jai is a heart that's filled with bliss. Jai is a heart. Isn't that beautiful? So that people will talk about me, piti jai. I have a blissful heart. Right? And I don't, they don't have Nordstrom's there, but I don't, I don't think they were talking about, you know, getting a really big package from Nordstrom's. You know what I mean? It's a different kind of piti jai. Just, you know, being, letting go of, of expectations and just being here. And then, uh, sila. Um, the Buddha talked about, um, you know, sila being the, the, sila meaning the five precepts, you know, the, the, the non-harming, the, the, the taking the, precept not to kill, not to um, lie, abstain from sexual misconduct and uh, um, any kind of exaggerated or misguided speech and avoidance of intoxicants. You know, the Buddha didn't talk about these as, um, because he was a square. You know, He talked about these um, sila as a form of happiness. You know, it's a real joy. 
you know, the real, real joy you know, um, that we can experience is by protecting our feelings. As a matter of fact, another expression that I love that I learned when I lived in Thailand was raksa seen. Raksa means protect, and seen is sila, protect. So when we talk, when we talk about, um, so people will ask you how many precepts do you protect? Isn't that beautiful? So um, most lay people like us would protect five, you know, raksa, seen ha, five precepts. When I lived in the monastery, they asked me how many uh, uh, precepts I, I protected, and I said raksa, seen ped, which is uh, protecting eight precepts, because when you're in the monastery, you eat only one meal a day, and you don't adorn yourself with any makeup or jewelry, and you, um, uh, you sleep on the floor. You don't sleep on any high and luxurious bedding. And again, this isn't because, you know, they were trying to, um, you know, uh, whip us into shape here. It was because that um, these forms of of restraint bring joy. You know, it's kind of the the paradox because in our Western culture, um, we think of when we we restrain from something that um, it's more of a, a downer. You know, it's a downer if we have to restrain, right? Doesn't that have a kind of puritanical association? And it, I just, it was so joy, it was so joyous for me um, moving to another culture to hear that, you know, that, that that there's freedom in restraint and that we don't do it because, you know, we're bad and we have to be good, so we have to, you know, put, put ourselves into these restrictive little boxes. Um, it's because... We're, we're, we're taught a different thing, which is that this is going to bring us happiness. It's going to bring us happiness. Restraint's going to bring us happiness. Restraint regarding our body, speech, and mind. And, you know, it was so beautiful. Um, the nuns in Thailand shave their heads. Uh, and as, as a monks do, of course. As an eight-precept laywoman, I didn't have to. Um, but you don't wear makeup and you don't wear jewelry. And uh, you just wear uh, a white shirt and a black skirt and the nuns wear white and white and the monks wear their fawn colored robes and because um, the Buddha really stressed beauty from the inside not you know the beauty that Clinique or <laughs> you know Old Spice tells us you know, how to be beautiful um, one of the things I would love to do is just look at the radiance of these people who, the monks, by the way, uh, um, protect 227 precepts, 227, including celibacy. And um, the, the, the monks, I mean, the, excuse me, the nuns, usually eight or ten precepts, um, the nine and ten being not touching money, some nuns do, and then the lay people protecting five. And... Um, the, rad- the collective radiance at the monasteries that I've lived at, people following these rules, was just unbelievable, the joy, you know, that would, that would come out of their heart. It was just a high to be around them because they were practicing, you know, not just meditation, which is the third parami, the third perfection, but dana and sila, you know, they're just letting go, just staying in the present moment and practicing restraint. You know, protecting restraint, I should say. Protect, isn't it? I just love that raksa. You know, you, so it's not like you, you've taken the precepts and you're some, you know, newly developed person who never, never says a bad word. 
is that you, you, you protect these things as a, as a form of happiness, as a vehicle for happiness. And then, you know, with that mind state that's balanced from generosity and from sila, you know, then we move into, you know, to the practice of uh, mindfulness, sati, uh, with such ease. You know, there's more joy. I thought that, and I'm sharing with you today because I thought that was such a beautiful observation by this monk coming to America and saying, like, what? why is everybody sitting here, like, in this strict form and look so grim? You know, this, they, you know why isn't their heart fifty jai, you know, filled with bliss? And then this, the, 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 his translator is saying, well, because, you know, they're, they're only taught kind of like, you know, one sliver of the path. So um, I'm bringing this up today because it's such a perfect season, you know, to talk about um, that, you know, mindfulness is, you know, the, the formal practice is, you know, hugely important, you know, as a way of collecting ourselves and, and collecting ourselves, connecting to our heart, opening ourselves up to the, pardon me, joys and sorrows, but also to remind us um, of the other opportunities that are available, um, you know, offering dana to ourselves and to others, um, not necessarily material dana, and that's beautiful, but just the generosity of our presence which is such, you know, probably the biggest gift. And the second is the gift of um, sila, you know, because people trust us, you know, and we trust them when we, when we offer that gift, and these being the real gifts. So, um, and that, just bringing in the anniversary of the tsunami, which is what happened the day after Christmas, is that... Um, you know, like that, that things are so impermanent, we never know, right? We just never know what's going to happen. And so how do we want to live you know, each moment? You know, how do we want to do it? Um, through drinks and drugs, intoxication, you know, with a closed heart, with, uh, you know, stiffness, grimness? Or, you know, do we want to live each moment knowing but we don't know when the next one's going to be, with the humility and the, um, the protection of Donna and Sila that Donna and Sila offer us. You know, simple, very simple. You know, you know there's no, um, there's absolutely no equipment that you need, you know. You don't need any, anything to practice you know, dana and sila and, and sati, you know, mindfulness, dana again, generosity, for those who are new, and uh, sila, morality, the virtues, and uh, third being uh, mindfulness. So I, I want to leave some time for questions, but I guess in this season of um, sometimes joy, sometimes sorrow, uh, that focuses a lot on a kind of material generosity that I encourage everybody to um, to really practice and to experience the pity jai of generosity and morality um, that's priceless and that's always with us and that's probably the you know the biggest source of joy 
that we can offer ourselves and we can offer each other no matter how you experience the season. So, and may whatever merit that comes from uh, this meditation together, this uh, little Dharma talk and any questions that you have be for the benefit of all of the victims of the tsunami and all those who survived it. So, thank you. So we have a few minutes for questions or discussion, please. You said uh, there is 200 some precepts for monks and for nuns. Uh, Either eight or ten. And what is the difference? Why? Why are they? Why do they have 270? 227 for the nuns. Yeah, and why the nuns have so little? That's a good question. Um, So a lot, a lot of that answer is. historical according to how um, I mean in culture both historical and cultural there are some nuns who do follow I think 235 precepts because when the Buddha um, ordained nuns he actually gave them additional ones in Thailand there are no fully ordained nuns there's still um, the status of monks and nuns in Thailand is is uh, radically different and so they don't have full ordination and so they take um, uh, ordination on a much lower level and, and that there's um, places like Korea um, have full ordination nuns and it's just trickling into Thailand and maybe even into the United States um, so these more um, elevated and, and full status nuns do exist, but not where I was practicing. So it's historical and cultural. Which, which leads to the, the question, are the men being self-contradictory in their own precepts and in the way that the there seems to be um, men are putting themselves above women in some way in, in Thailand. Is there a contradiction in their precepts that you that you might have perceived? Um, that's, a, that's a very complicated question. Um, it, it certainly, in my experience there, um, you know, because the monks are so highly elevated because of... Um, the ordination is, con- is considered so much more seriously and so, so much more revered than the people who can give, uh, who can offer blessings, you know, and the, the nuns don't have that status of being able to do that. You know, that's, that it's a major problem, it's a major issue, and it's, it's constantly being addressed and re- readdressed to try to improve the status of, of nuns. So I, I don't know what it is. I just, I, I mean, I, 
it's sort of like, it's so contradictory that I, I can't, um, I don't understand the culture of Thailand, even though I haven't been there. I, I know, it's just like everything I learned is that the young women are sold into, sold into the sex, uh, young women are sold into sex uh, slavery, essentially, the sex trade, because families are impoverished and I can't quite figure out the society where it's so Buddhist, where it, they have so, fun, so many fundamental problems, I guess. That's why, that's what I, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know if I have, need to go there. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. um, it's a society. It's dukkha. It's suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> many different problems. There's many, very, many, many, very magnificent and beautiful parts to it. And there's, uh, there's a dark side, mm-hmm. major dark, dark side as well. As, uh, as they say in, in Thailand, Tamada, it's normal. I tend to notice when men become too self-important, that's uh, its own problem in, a, in, a, in, a, in of its own self. And so you say men are you know, raised to a certain, you know, monks. elated monks, yeah. but then, you know, <laughs> that's a problem in its own self. It can be. It's not, it's not inherent. Than it can be. I'm one of the many people here who have not heard your talk on the tsunami, and I just have one question about about that. You must have seen very many people from very many spiritual traditions um, coping with some very stressful situations. I'm wondering if you can, if you have any insight or, I'd be very curious to hear the different spiritual traditions, which ones um, seem to cope better or how how that worked. Um, that's a really good question and um, it was really striking to me um, when I was helping people um, the difference between the Western culture, the people who were from the Western culture, versus people from um, Buddhist culture. The primary difference between being that in the Buddhist culture, um, there there was a general uh, acceptance that that of the first noble truth, that that there's suffering, and that there's impermanence, and that you know, things in life are generally, you know, difficult. Um, we don't have that in our culture. You know, we get mad, you know, when things, you know, when we think things should go a certain way and um, we get angry and disappointed, you know, if, if they don't, and we feel a kind of um, a righteousness around that. <coughs> And so um, Westerners, in general, compared to the the Buddhists that I, I helped, you know, had a lot more anger about what happened, and felt very you know kind of ripped off and you know furious at you know why couldn't anybody predict this and you know why isn't enough being done to help us and um, you know so what's wrong with this. Which was extremely, you know, on top on top of the pain and the suffering of the enormous tragedy, you know, 
that suffering on top was just really difficult to feel and to see. Whereas the Buddhists tend to, you know, were, you know, equally as um, heartbroken, how could you not? Um, But more in line of, this is what happens in life. You know, we don't know. We don't know when, we don't know how. You know, and, and this is what the Buddha taught, that life is unpredictable, that there's suffering, um, and that we just don't know what the next moment's going to bring. So that was very um, revealing to me, you know, in trying to help people, because, you know, anger, of course, you know, has a positive function, which is it protects you from you know, deeper layers of grief, you know, I mean, how, how much could you, how much could that, so if you spent more time being angry, you know, it was probably better than having a nervous breakdown, and people had many of those too. Um, but the double layer, it's like the, the arrow of suffering and then the other arrow of, of hating it and wishing it wasn't true and rejecting it and being angry, you know, I saw many, many times, many, many instances um, adding a lot more suffering to the situation that was already, you know, unspeakably unspeakably brimming with the worst kind of suffering I've ever seen. You know, just bodies everywhere. So, um, which really helped me to um, wake up to, you know, this is it. This is, this is, this is the only practice, for me anyway. You know, from, I'm just talking from my, I don't want to preach to the choir, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to convert anybody, but, you know, that to see so many people dead in tennis outfits and bikinis and, you know, leisure wear, it's like, wow, you know, they didn't get up in the morning and think I'm going to be dead today. You know, they weren't prepared for that. And that's what the Buddha teaches me, and that's why we meditate. We meditate just like, what's true? Things change, you know. There's, you know, there's suffering and change, and that it's, you know, it's impersonal. It happens. So does that answer your question? And I'm not trying to put down Westerners, I mean, <laughs> myself included, you know, it's just that we have very different conditioning. Um, I was reading uh, a piece of literature on one of the desks about desire and the difference between craving and desire, how some desire can actually be healthy um, because it can motivate us in to do right action and to right speech and to right thought. How do you feel about the difference between desire and craving? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, this isn't my opinion. This is what the, the Buddha taught. <laughs> um, um, the Buddha taught you know, exactly what you said, that there's, um, there's very healthy aspirations that, that he called chanda, um, which, which are um, the forces within us that, that elevate us to want to you know, improve our, our conditions, 
you know, to better ourselves, better our society, better our families, etc. And, you know, these need to be cultivated because they're very skillful and they're very wholesome. Yeah? And then the cravings tend to be the kind of blind, when the blinders come on, say, oh, I need to, I have to, I want to, I must. You know, at, at any cost, at all costs. You know, have this, get this, need this, you know. And so those he called thirst, you know, um, those he called the kind of thirst that we, that we're on automatic pilot and they tend to come out of an unskillful place that they think are, are going to fill some kind of need inside of us that we're not whole until we receive these experiences or tastes or sensations or whatever. Is that, is that helpful? Any other questions or? So, um, tis the season to whatever. <laughs> Who knows, right? Who knows to keep practicing um, kindness and acceptance and joy and generosity. Um, not necessarily the ways that um, Costco or or um, Godiva Chocolate's trying to tell us to do it, but in our own creative ways. And I want to thank the center again for inviting me. I always love coming here and wish you everybody well. And again, um, may our efforts and time together uh, be for the benefit of the victims and survivors and to all beings everywhere. Thank you.